See? Oh, you guys are wonderful. Please be seated. We're in the middle of a series, and last week we looked at God's design for marriage, and that teaching is foundational for the whole series. So if you missed it, it's on YouTube, it's on our website, you can catch yourself up. But this week, we're going to look at God's design for sex. And I know and I realize that this is a topic that is larger than what I can cover in a single Sunday morning fellowship, but we can cover the basics of God's love and God's heart. Now, my primary role as a minister is a pastor, which means I care for people, I counsel with people, I love people, I sit with people. And I often have the privilege of ministering to the wounded. And that is a great privilege, as Tim attested in his uh, testimony today. Uh, And I want to tell you quite clearly that it is either ignorance or rejection of the truths of God's word regarding marriage and sex that have caused more heartache for men, women, and children than any other issue that is brought before me. This is important stuff. And as we get started, I want to remind you of something that Jesus said in the Gospel of John. He said that his words were truth. Well, that's good. Now we know where to find it. His words were truth, and the truth would set you free. So God's word is truth. What Jesus Christ said is truth. And we need to settle that within our hearts, that God has given us the final say on truth. We all have opinions, right? Everybody, we all have opinions. Some of our opinions are even very strongly held. But here's the thing. I do not have the authority or the ability to turn Bob's opinions into eternal truth. Only God can do that. So I want you to keep this in mind uh, as we go about, as we look at what the scriptures say about marriage and now adding to that marriage and sex. First of all, God is love. God is love. His will is always best. Secondly, God knows everything. Isn't that great that somebody does? (laughs) God knows everything. His directions will always be right. And finally, God is almighty. The God that you love and serve, the God we were praying to, the God we were hearing from, that God is almighty. You can talk to me about your problems. I can listen lovingly and patiently to your problems. Bob is not almighty. God is almighty. He can enable you to accomplish his will. And it is truth that sets men and women free. Truth sets people free. And when you look behind that, truth sets people free, lies are what keep people in prison. Lies are what keep men and women in bondage. Not so much lies that you tell, it's not good either, but the most dangerous lies are the lies that you believe. Because often the lie, we don't even understand that what we believe is not true. So there is no subject that I have encountered that has been more relentlessly lied about and misrepresented than sex and marriage. A constant drumbeat of information that is at odds with what God has to say. And this is not by accident. God's arch enemy, the devil, knows better than most Christians 
what God has planned for marriage and sex. He is very well aware of the joy, the beauty, the magnificence of what God designed in marriage and sexual relationships. And the devil understands this, and therefore he's out to ruin it because he only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he ruins it with lies. He ruins it with lies. Lies that are now widely believed in our culture. Actually, lies that have been widely believed in pretty much every culture, not just our culture. Well, I won't pick on us. Now, when I decided to teach on marriage, divorce, remarriage, and sex, I knew that I was talking and taking on a subject that can be both sensitive and painful for people. But it doesn't help us any to hide from the truth because God's truth is the way through our pain. God's truth is the way into joy and fulfillment. And my goal is not now or in anything that I teach to condemn anyone for where they have been. That's not what God does. See, in fact, God cannot bless yesterday. God can't bless yesterday. That's gone. God can bless today, and God can bless tomorrow. So we want to learn his truth, not so that we can feel bad about yesterday, but that, so that we can enjoy what he's done for us today. So let's look at the blessings that God designed for sex within marriage. Now, God invented marriage. It is the first human relationship that he addresses. It's what he designed for man and woman. And at the end of God's activity of creation, here's how he summarizes everything that he did. Genesis 1.31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And that must mean if it was all very good, if everything was very good, then so was marriage and sex. It was very good. God calls it very good, but what is good, what is very good, can still be corrupted and with disastrous results. See, sex is a gift that goes beyond either making babies or pleasure. These are the two things that the world focuses on. There have been Christian groups, religious groups, not just Christian, but religious groups that say sex is only for procreation. Today, it's very common that sex is only for pleasure. If it feels good, do it. Neither of those, both are true. Sex does make babies, in case you were wondering. That's how we get them. Uh, sex is pleasurable. You probably figured that out. But there was something more and greater that God designed in sex that is not talked about, that is not understood, that is therefore then missed completely. Sex was designed to be the culmination of the marriage covenant. It was designed as something that solidifies a man and a woman as one flesh. You see, humans, unlike animals, in our sexual, intima- our sexual relations involve intimacy. That is not something that the dog involves. That's not something that cows and monkeys have. God has given to humans within sex, which he's placed in marriage, a sense and a form of intimacy that goes beyond anything that we could understand otherwise. And look what it says in Genesis 2.24. It says, therefore, this is God, 
This is second chapter of the Bible, okay? Second chapter of the Bible, really early on, God has just invented marriage, and he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, sex is not the only aspect of being one flesh. It is, however, the most visible example of it, and sex the way God designed it, and God designed it to do this, whether you abuse it or not, sex forms a bond with the person you have sex with. That is something that God designed to solidify one flesh. That's why God places it within the context of marriage. And sex and marriage are very important to God. And he wants them held in high esteem. He wants them honored and understood which, of course, is why the devil wants them debased and misused, because the devil wants the opposite of that. Now, God designed sex for marriage. Obviously, sex can be utilized outside of marriage, but never with the same joy and blessings that God designed for it. Without a covenant, without God joining a man and woman, you cannot enjoy the fullness of what God designed sex for. Let's see a little bit about what God has to say about sex. In Proverbs chapter 5, let's look at verse 18 here. Let your fountain be blessed. Here the word fountain is a euphemism for the male sex organ. Okay, God does that. So now you can figure this out. That's what this is talking about. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Verse 19. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. This is in the Bible. This isn't, you know, like some Lord Byron poem. This is, this is in the Bible. This is figurative language, obviously. But you get the idea, okay? Look at Song of Solomon. A lot of Christians haven't known what to do with Song of Solomon. They just don't, you're like, is this really part of the Bible? What is God talking about here? This is like, th there's stuff in the Song of Solomon that would certainly make a Puritan blush, okay? And yet it's God's word, it's scripture. It's his description of sex within marriage. This is how he looks at it. Verse 6, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. And verse 7. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. Okay, now we live in the north, but you've been in, you've been in Florida, maybe, and you've seen palm trees with coconuts on them, right? You get any image of what God is saying? I didn't write this stuff, okay? This isn't Bob giving you this example. God wrote this stuff. Verse 8, gets better. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples. Okay, maybe not the analogies that we would use in the 21st century, but I think you get the idea. God wants us to enjoy what he invented. But sex was not just designed for making babies or for pleasure. Those are the two things that the world focuses on. And they miss the greater reality of joining with another person and how that God even designed sex within its very act, within the very way it affects you emotionally, hormonally, 
mentally, physically, to form a bond with another person. That's what it was designed to do. And that's what it does. It's a wonderful thing. But whatever God has designed, the devil can counterfeit. In fact, the only thing the devil can do is counterfeit. The devil is in no way original in anything that he does or tries. All he can do is corrupt and counterfeit and mimic what God has done. And you only counterfeit what is valuable. Nobody counterfeits quarters. They're just not valuable. Most common thing counterfeited is $20 bills, by the way. Fun fact to know and tell in Trivial Pursuit. But you only counterfeit something that is valuable. Think about that in light of how much the world that the devil controls throws lies and counterfeits about sex. You know what that tells me? It's valuable. It's important. Marriage is important to God. Any use of sex or marriage that varies from God's plan is a dangerous counterfeit. And when I say a dangerous counterfeit, I'm not talking about STDs. I'm not talking about unwanted pregnancies. I am talking about forming bonds where you don't want to form bonds. That is the danger here. Forming a bond outside of God's will for your life. Now, Jesus Christ said, so I believe it, that the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the only reason the devil is showing up on your front door. So that what he offers you about sex and marriage, no matter how it is gift-wrapped and presented, is only designed ultimately to steal, kill, and destroy. Let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians 2.8, or 4.2, excuse me. 1 Thessalonians 4.2. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul had instructed them. What he told them was not Paul's great idea, it was God's. Verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That word sanctified means to live a holy life. God is holy. He wants us to be like him. I want to be just like my dad. I want to be sanctified. And the particular context of sanctification that he's talking about here is that you should avoid sexual immorality. Verse 4, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. I want to live my life, all of it, in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Verse 6, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. That's pretty much exactly the opposite of what the world promotes today. Using people. People are to be loved. Things are to be used. The Lord will punish all who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to, get, but to live a holy life. Because a holy life is going to be the most blessed life. You want to know a big lie the devil has sold people? A holy life is a boring life. No. A holy life is an exciting life. Jesus Christ lived a holy life. Paul the Apostle lived a holy life. All the time, Christians, I want to be like the Apostle Paul. I want to be like Peter. I want to be like Christ. All good role models. That's a holy life. A holy life is an exciting life. It is joy beyond what you could imagine. 
Verse 8, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction that Paul gave them from Christ does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Sex enjoyed as God intended is part of a holy life. You know, a lot of Christians through the centuries have thought sex is bad or dirty. No, it's part of a holy life. How's that? That's what God says. And God holds both sex and marriage in high esteem. You think about something right now that you might honor or hold in high esteem. That's what God thinks of marriage. That's what God thinks of sex within marriage. Look at Hebrews 13.4. It says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Well, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to understand that marriage is no longer held in honor in many places in the world today. And neither is the marriage bed, which is simply a word, you know, euphemism or a description of sex. It's no wonder that Paul had to deal so strongly with this in his epistles or that God had him deal so strongly with it. It talks here about sexual immorality and adultery in this verse. What are these two things? You know, when you think about what is sexual immorality, that's different at different times and in different places and in different cultures. Our culture has reached a point today where the only sexual matters that are considered to be immoral are those that are forced, such as rape, sex with minors, or incest. At least the world still considers those immoral. Everything else is considered a matter or merely a matter of personal choice and preference. Choices like you're making a choices off of a restaurant menu. That's how people look at this. Even adultery, which is still generally frowned upon today, in many areas is still viewed as acceptable under certain circumstances. That's how far our culture has gone forth. That, you know why these things happen? Because marriage is not held in high esteem any longer. It is no longer honored. It's no longer understood as a covenant. Now, if you want to understand where God places, how he views sexual immorality, let's look at the company it keeps in Scripture. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. This is Jesus talking. It says, for out of the heart. It doesn't say from out of the penis. It says from out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Sexual immorality in God's listing keeps some pretty sketchy company. Theft, lying, slander, murder. But what exactly is sexual immorality? When you read the New Testament, the Greek word behind the word sexual, we have two words, sexual immorality. There's a single Greek word. It's the word porneia. You can look at this word. You can see that we get our English word pornography straight from the first half of this Greek word porneia. The last half of pornography is, means visual, graphic, written, or visual in some sense. Literally, the word porneia refers to sexual intercourse outside the covenant of marriage. That's what the word porneia means in Scripture. 
And God's design for sexual intercourse was between a man and a woman who had made a covenant together before God in marriage. Anything other than that constitutes in God's understanding and God's heading sexual immorality, which is something that God warns us about. And I only warn people about things that are damaging, right? I only, you only warn people about something that's damaging. Your grandchild wants to stick its finger in the outlet, you warn them about that. Why? Because it's damaging. And when God warns us of something, it's damaging even if we don't see it as damaging ourselves. I'll give you an example. In the 1930s, I know this because of my mom, in the 1930s, they treated acne with x-rays. You go to the dermatologist and you sit there with an x-ray machine on your face, your back, and your chest. And they thought that was fine. They didn't know it wasn't good. They didn't know it was dangerous. But just because they were ignorant, did that make x-rays safe? No, there, my, my mother had to have her thyroid gland removed because it had been destroyed by irradiation that was used to treat acne. So that even if you don't recognize something as damaging, it still can be. That's why God warns us. Now, porneia is a general word, and it refers to any sexual intercourse outside of the marriage covenant, whether it is premarital, meaning between two people who are not married, whether it is unlawful, such as incest, or whether it is unnatural, which is how God describes both homosexual acts as well as sex with animals. All of those are covered under the general heading of porneia. Now, adultery was also in that verse in Matthew. Adultery is sexual intercourse between two people one or more, one or both of them are married to somebody else. That's what adultery is, which means sex with somebody other than your spouse. And that is a very serious type of sexual immorality in God's book. And that is because it is the breaking of a covenant, because you made a covenant with that man or with that woman. I might add that Adultery is a particularly selfish type of sexual immorality because of the damage it does to innocent parties, not to mention the damage it does to yourself. If you want to shoot yourself in the foot, I guess that's your privilege. But don't shoot your wife, husband, and children in the foot, okay? That's what adultery does. To show you how serious God viewed adultery, in the Old Testament, the punishment for adultery was death. That's a pretty serious punishment. That was also, by the way, the punishment for rape, death. Whereas the consequence under Old Testament law, the consequence for what we call premarital sex, you know what the consequence for that was? You get married. (laughs) That was the consequence for it. Because that's what God wants. He wants sex within marriage. Okay, so you wanted to have sex, you had sex. Okay, well, get married. That's what he's saying. That's what God says. So God warns us about all the various types of sexual immorality, some of which are acceptable today in our culture. But just because it's acceptable in our culture doesn't mean that God has changed his mind about it. Here are some counterfeit forms of sexual intercourse. They're even, you know, so it's not new. Just so that you know that it's not new, this is in Deuteronomy, written about 1200 B.C. So, you know, sexual immorality is not a modern issue. It goes way back. So, 
Verse 21, Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, and the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. I wonder, you had to tell people about that? <laughs> it must have been pretty far gone that God has to tell people about some of these things. Look at Leviticus 18.22. It says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Then in 1 Corinthians 6.9, this is just God warning us about these things. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. So there are three things there listed. Sexual immorality is a general term. Adultery is a specific type of sexual immorality, as is homosexual acts. Notice it says here, men who practice homosexuality. From God's perspective, there is no such thing as a homosexual. There is no such thing as a human being who is genetically programmed to have sex with a member of their own sex. That just doesn't exist in God's vocabulary. That is a lie that is used today to promote the acceptance of homosexuality. That's just the way I'm made. This is the way God made me. No, it's not. In decades past, homosexual acts were promoted as an alternative lifestyle. Today, that has been replaced with the idea that that's just how a person was made. But that's not what the scriptures teach. God calls homosexual acts, practicing homosexuality, an abomination. He doesn't call it an alternative. In the book of Romans, it's very interesting, we won't go there, it's in Romans 1, God calls homosexual acts contrary to nature. So if it is contrary to nature, it's not, nat it's not natural, is it? If it's contrary to nature, it's not the way God made you. What it is, rather, is a choice that you've made. And if you look at it like that, okay, I understand, people can make choices. That's what it is, but just don't blame God for your choices. You know, whenever God calls something sin, if God calls it sin in the Bible, two things have to be present. Two things. Choice and damage. God doesn't call anything sin unless you have a choice in the matter. And God doesn't call anything sin unless in some way, shape, or form it is damaging to you. Now, our modern culture evaluates things very differently. They evaluate things as to whether or not they perceive that harm is being caused. Therefore, whatever two adults decide to do should make no difference to anyone else. Now, I would agree with that statement if we are talking about what should be a crime. If you're talking about what should be a crime, I certainly would agree with that. And crimes, things that overtly hurt other individuals, are what society should be interested in. Not every sin comes under the heading of something that should be a crime. You know, it's, it's not a crime to be drunk. Did you, under, did you know that? It's only a crime to drive if you're drunk. If you want to sit at home and get hammered, that's not a crime. But God warns us against drunkenness, whether you're alone at home, behind a wheel, or walking the street. 
worshiping idols. That's a huge sin to God, isn't it? Worshiping idols. Should that be a crime? No, that shouldn't be a crime. It's a tragedy when people worship idols, but we wouldn't make it a crime. We reach out to people to help them understand God. God addresses these things so that we could enjoy life and be both blessed and protected. Now, our culture thinks that there is no harm with consulting adults. But as one who does a good deal of counseling, remember I told you what I mostly do is be a pastor? A lot of people think of what I mostly do is teach because they see me teaching a lot. But what I really, the number of hours spent, far more in counseling than I ever spend in front of people teaching. And I can tell you, as one who does a lot of counseling, that sin always has consequences. It always does damage. First in our relationship to God, but then it can spread from there. In a very real sense, God is warning us off sin because sin sickens the soul. That's why God warns us and the devil tempts us. See, the devil knows that too. Now, it's one thing to say that something is sin. God points out a number of things that are sin. It's quite another thing to spend your life judging and condemning people who are trapped in sin. That is not what we do. These verses, by the way, talking about uh, sex with animals, your mother-in-law are homosexuals. Those verses, by the way, they were written to people who had a relationship to God, either through the Old Testament covenant or the new birth of the New Testament. They were not written to unbelievers. We always lead with love. And we don't care where people have been. We lead with love, not judgment. The attitude of many Christians today is a disgrace to God. They condemn people who are trapped. Now think about this. If you went to the hospital to visit someone who had contracted malaria, are you going to rag on them for having malaria? No. You don't do, you know, we, we don't condemn the sick. We don't, we don't sit there in judgment and condemnation of those who are trapped. You know what we do instead? We love them. Christians represent themselves. God hates fags. You ever see that on the news? What a lie. My Bible says, for God so loved the world, except for fags. Doesn't say that, does it? No, God so loved the world. Why do people get drawn into judgment so easily? You know, I tell people, when, when, if I'm sitting with them, there's not anything you're going to tell me that's going to shock me or make me think less of you. It's just not. Because I understand how the world works, and I represent a God who has a different way, the way of love. The purpose that God has in identifying and warning us about sin His purpose is to set people free. Let's make sure that's our purpose too, to set people free. Now, the only way any of these things that I'm talking about will make any sense to you you, is if you have come to the conclusion that God is love and that God's words are true and that his opinion, his instructions, his guidance are always best. Look at Deuteronomy 6.24. This is a great, you know, there's commandments in the Old Testament. You probably noticed that. And the Lord God commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always. Why does God give us these commandments? In order that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. So why does God give us instructions? 
so that we can be blessed. Now we're going to look at the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, the book of Corinthians is often called a reproof epistle because within it, within its 16 chapters, God brings up a lot of information to help and warn people who are trapped in some sin or another. And the Corinthian church was being destroyed by two things, immaturity and immorality. That's what was destroying the Corinthian church. And what we're called to do, and what the call of Corinthians is, the book, the book of Corinthians, is to be Christ-centered. That's what our call in life is. Now, if you look at history, most of us today consider the Roman Empire to be immoral. We make movies about it all the time. We consider the Roman Empire to be immoral. The Romans considered Corinth to be immoral. That kind of shows you how bad they were. In fact, they even took the word Corinth, the name of the city, and they turned it into a verb, to Corinthicize, and that that meant to really debase somebody sexually. That's how bad Corinth was. In addition to the types of immorality you would find in any large Roman city, prostitution was big business in the city of Corinth, real big business. They had the Temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love in Corinth. There were a thousand temple prostitutes who worked there. This is, the, this is where they were. Sex with slaves was considered normal. I own you, I do what I want with you. Children and women who were destitute were often shunted into prostitution, which is something that still happens today with human trafficking. This is the culture of Corinth. And it is into this culture that the gospel came and conquered. It can do it again in our day and time. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As bad as Corinth was, the Christians in Corinth did something that even shocked the Corinthians. Talk about things. 1 Corinthians 5.1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans for a man to have his father's wife. Now, whether this means his mother or his stepmother, I don't know, but it was so bad that even the, Corinth, the people in Corinth, the pagans of Corinth, went, ew. And you are arrogant, verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Look at verse 6. We'll skip down to there. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump? So here's what we have in Corinth. In the, in the church in Corinth, not only was this man trapped in sexual immorality, but the whole church knew about it and thought it was just fine. And this introduces what Paul is doing here in Corinthians. It introduces the very uncomfortable subject of public reproof within the church. And the Bible has some very specific instructions about when that is to be done. And this is one of them. When it had so permeated the belief of the entire church that the entire church had to be told, wait a minute, guys, this is wrong. If this person's sin was private, he would have been confronted privately. That's, how, that's why it's different here. Now, leaven is yeast, okay? And that is used in ex as an example of something that spreads. Sin spreads. 
Everyone in the church knew about this, but rather than confront the person, they were arrogant and boastful. You know why they were boastful? We're going to find it in chapter 6. It's like, hey, we're Christians. We're under grace. We have no laws. We do whatever we want. People think that's modern. That's the Corinthian church. Chapter 6 is what's going to show us about this. Look at uh, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, we're going to look at this verse here. You notice all things are lawful to me is in quotations, right? I put it in bold print. It's in quotations. This isn't Paul saying this. This is a literary device. This is what the Corinthians were saying. They were saying, look, all things are lawful for me. Paul's going, well, yeah, okay, not everything's helpful. All things are lawful unto me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now let's go to the next verse. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Did I miss a verse? Okay, because I have on verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. I must, they, they, look at this, technology didn't import it right. So another thing that the Corinthians were saying, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. My penis is meant for, you get the idea. That was what they were saying. That, that was their attitude. And Paul goes, okay, food is meant for, God will destroy both one and the other. Food might be made for the stomach, but the body is not made or meant for immoral, sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. See, Paul counteracts this attitude, which we would consider quite modern. It's grace. Anything goes. This isn't a modern idea. This is an old idea. Look at verse 14. It says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, prostitution in Corinth was the most common type of sexual immorality since it was fully legal and freely practiced throughout Corinth. People don't visit a prostitute to develop a long-term relationship. That's not why people go to prostitutes. And yet, that's what happens because sex was designed by God to form bonds. Sex is much more than physical. God designed it to cement the bond and the covenant of marriage, which is why people have difficulty cutting themselves off from relationships even when they are recognized as damaging. I mean, I have met with people, women who just will not leave an abusive boyfriend. Men who will not leave a train wreck girlfriend. Why is that? Because they formed a bond with them that perhaps they were not intending to form, but now they're having difficulty breaking. Those types of bonds can be easily broken in Christ. We help people do this all the time. But you can see what occurs. Look at verse 18. It says, flee sexual immorality. Our society is pursuing it. They're still running, but they're running towards it instead of away from it. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I don't really know what that's talking about, but it doesn't sound good to me. It doesn't sound like something I want to be a part of. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? The temple isn't in Jerusalem anymore, folks. The Spirit dwells within us. Whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Sex with your spouse glorifies God. Sex with anyone else glorifies self. And that's not what we're looking for. Paul's going to now begin to address some questions about sex that the Corinthians wrote to him. See, in the book of Corinthians, some things, they wrote Paul a letter. We don't have that letter, but we have Paul's answers. Some things Paul is answering what they wrote. Other things God is just having Paul bring up. Look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 7. It says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, literally, this, the Greek in this literally says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That's the literal translation. Just because something is literal doesn't mean it makes any sense. That's why what we're after in translations is meaning. So the ESV is trying to convey the meaning of that, which is that you should not have sexual relations with a woman who is not your wife. This is going to be very clear in the next couple of verses. The reason, of course, is that it will lead to sexual immorality, meaning sexual intercourse outside of marriage which we just read earlier in the chapter, is a sin against your own body. Now, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. A lot of people have read that because that's how the King James translates it. So I've had people over the years want me to clarify what kind of touching is God talking about. Religion has a lot of suggestions. Bob does not. The Pharisees had all kinds of fence laws. You know, God gives you a law. Don't, you know, don't work on the Sabbath. So you know what the Pharisees said? Don't work on the Sabbath. Don't walk through the grain fields on the Sabbath because you might pick a ear of corn and eat it and that would be work. Did God say anything about taking a shortcut through the grain fields? No. They made it their own law. The Baptists had this. Other Christian denominations, they were against dancing. Well, God's against sexual immorality. Dancing could lead to sexual immorality. So they forbid dancing. All kinds of nonsense that people introduce that's not in God's word at all. People have come up with all kinds of commandments that God never gave. gave. I refuse to be drawn into that. But I do want to give you a little wisdom to help you with this. Here's what you should do if you're single and you're wondering about this. Go to God and ask Him what's appropriate in your situation. How's that? What's appropriate in your situation might not be appropriate in somebody else's. For example, it would be a violation of verse 1 for a married man to touch the breasts of any other woman than his wife. See, the question comes up with single people who are dating. And, you know, the Bible just really doesn't address dating because that wasn't part of their culture. I, ha- I heard a simple piece of advice about this years ago. It says, and that was, if you don't have it on your body, don't touch it on theirs. <laughs> Understand what this is all about. God is trying to help you avoid sexual intermorality, which is referring specifically to intercourse. That's what that word means. Let's not expand on what God is talking about, okay? If you need God to show you something further about your situation, feel free to ask Him. 
He will happily give you wisdom and understanding. Don't come and ask me. Ask God. He's the one with the wisdom. Okay, let's go back to verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, meaning a woman not his wife. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal or sexual rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Boy, have that, has that verse been abused. Again, it's not a bad translation of the Greek words that are there, but it does not convey the meaning at all. The New International Version captures, I think, the meaning of this verse where it says in verse 4 of the NIV, the wife's body does not belong to her alone. Your body still does belong to you, by the way. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband in the same way the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Since you are now one flesh, you take each other into consideration. That's what it's talking about. I'm one flesh with my right foot. If my right foot was broken, would I make it run a marathon? No, I wouldn't do that, would I? That's what God is talking about. You work things out with one another. It's one of the joys of being married. Men, however, have used this verse to demand more sex from their wives. Now, that's certainly loving somebody like Christ. Okay, by the way, that was sarcasm, (laughs) what I just said there. That's not loving somebody like Christ. That's using people. Your wife did not become your sex slave at marriage, okay? That's just putting that out there. Walk in love and consider each other's needs and desires. Then verse 5. See, because here, license and doing anything you want anytime is one extreme. You know what the other extreme is? Sex is dirty and bad. You should never have to do it unless, unless you got to have a kid, you shouldn't have sex. That was the other opposite extreme. Because remember I told you, people look at it as only either making babies or pleasure. God has something much bigger in mind than either of those two things. So in verse 5, it says, Do not deprive one another of what? Sex. Except perhaps, except perhaps by agreement for what? A limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. Paul is saying, this is not a commandment of the Lord, that you take time away from sex in order to be devoted to him. He's just saying, if you decide to do that, abstaining from sex during marriage is permissible if, if the time is short and the reason is devotion to God. Abstaining from sex because you're angry is not permissible. Using sex as a reward is not permissible. Work out your issues if that's your case. Look at verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each man has his own gift from God, one from one kind, another from another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul was single at this time. Whether or not he had ever been married is unclear. Although for a Jewish adult man not to be married, especially a Pharisee, would be highly unusual. But he's not married at this time. But what this verse uh, is talking about is some people are content to be single, some people aren't. 
Whichever it is for you, that's fine. Verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. How much you burn with passion is going to depend in no small part upon your thought life. Remember, sexual immorality comes out of the heart. So what do we do with our thought life? If you spend your days looking at pornography, your sexometer is going to be pegged at 10, which is a little higher than God would ordinarily have it pegged at. God is talking in this context. What he's talking about is choosing to live together rather than get married. Living together is a counterfeit of marriage. Now, in their culture, there would be no dating. Okay, no such thing as dating in their culture. If you wanted to be married, you would talk to your father or your older brother if your father was dead, and he would arrange something to you for you. Our culture is based on personal choice. I happen to like that better because I would have never met Susan. My parents would have never met Susan 70 miles away to arrange my marriage to her. But you know, a lot of the reason we find that better is just our culture. If you had lived back then, you would have considered arranged marriages to be just normal and fine. It's just a matter of what you're used to, that's all. But God doesn't deal with dating. So we have to understand from Scripture what God might be, what wisdom God might have. If you are dating someone and you find yourself that you cannot contain your passion, you know what God says you should do? Get married. He doesn't say take a cold shower. He says get married. If you are not currently dating and you would like to be married, then pray to God about that. Now, I have heard this many times. I try not to laugh when I hear it now, but I hear it often that a couple simply decided to move in together to test drive their marriage. That's why they decided to move in together. Marriage is a covenant where God joins you. You cannot test drive that outside of the covenant. You can learn about sex. But let me tell you something. If you've got the equipment, you can figure it out without a test drive. You know what delays marriage in our culture today many times? The big party. I want the big party. And the place I want to do this party, I have my heart set on, it's a year out before I can get that venue. So we'll just move in together anyway now. No, 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 no. How about doing it this way? How about getting married now and having your big party in a year? We have people all over the country that are choosing to do that now. It's a much more biblical way to approach it within the confines of our culture. I'm not, a, I'm not against big parties for weddings. Weddings are worth celebrating. If God holds it in high honor, it is worth celebrating. But it's not worth setting God's word aside for. So you want to get married. You, find, you decide you want to get married. Great. Get married. Pull your license. Come to my office tomorrow. Bring your mom and dad along. It's pretty easy. Okay. Oh, here's another thing I hear a lot of. Uh, I'm not married. I'm not even seriously dating. Why should I be denied sex? Okay, they've they've said it that to, to me that way. Why should I be denied? Okay, the very usage of words points to selfishness. Why should I be denied? You are not denying yourself until marriage. You are waiting to give yourself in marriage. Here's a different way to look at it. Rather than thinking you are being denied something, 
Why not look at it that you are not willing to forfeit a gift from God for a second-rate counterfeit? That would be a different way to look at it. See, here's the thing. God loves sex. He didn't have to invent sex. We could have reproduced by cloning. He didn't need sex for reproduction. He could have invented something else, but he didn't. He invented sex, and God designed it to be one of the ways that we can form the one flesh bond with our spouses. You know, God is smart. How many agree with that? God is wise, God is smart. Getting a lot of hands going up. Good. like that. Those of you who didn't put your hands up, I'm sure you still believe that. You just weren't listening. God is smart. God is wise. And in his wisdom, in his wisdom, God has chosen to make sex a part of our human experience. God, in his wisdom, chose that. Not in his foolishness. He didn't make a mistake. He's not saying, oh, gee, you know, I should have done that. Knew it should have been, I knew it should have been uh, like amoebas. That would have been easier. No, 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 no. Because sex is of God's design, we should hold it in high esteem. And we should approach it according to his wisdom, with reverence, anticipating its joy, looking forward to the one flesh that it's designed to make. Look at Ecclesiastes 9.9. There's a lot of verses about God's high opinion of sex. It says, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life. What is your reward? To enjoy your spouse. That is your reward. That's, not, that's a decent reward. I got a good reward. And in your toil, which you have labored under the sun. You know, the world laughs at Christ. The world laughs at God's wisdom. But God's wisdom is what works. And you know, when I bring this stuff up, you know, I know, and obviously more than just the people in this room because lots of other people listen in, I'm not saying this to condemn anybody. That's not my point at all. I just want us to understand and to hold in high regard both sex and marriage to honor it the way God does, to enjoy it the way God wants it to be enjoyed. It's not dirty. It's wonderful. And God wants us to enjoy it. The sad truth is that what the world calls its so-called liberal attitude towards sexual matters is nothing but heartache and slavery in the long run. And that's a shame. God has truth that we can enjoy and truth that sets people free. So why don't you stand? We're going to pray together. Like last week, I have an outline in the back for you that you can pick up. Didn't need it to go through the teaching with me, but I thought it would be helpful if you had it uh, to look at. There's also more from last week there as well. So why don't you close your eyes and let's pray. Thank you, God, for being God. Thank you for being a father who cares about every aspect of our life, who has given us great joy in life and also instructions on how to best enjoy this life. I pray for each of us here today, God. I especially pray for those who are struggling with any physical impairment or disease, God, that you bring them healing. And we command this in Christ's name because you have given us this authority, you've given us this power, and it is your will that each and every one of us are set free. Whether it's a physical illness or an emotional bondage, God, it is your will, and we claim that. And I pray for this upcoming week 
that it can be a time of joy for us in all regards. I pray that you open up doors for us to speak your word, that you show us what you're doing around us so that we can be a part of it. And I give you these things in Christ's name, amen. God bless you. You guys are the best.